Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere And each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. And welcome back to Success Made to Last. I'm Rick Tokini. This is our legend show. We are so pleased to have on today... David C. Baker, who has written one of my favorite books that I've now read twice called The Business of Expertise. And up front, I want to thank my cousin, Yvonne Tokini, for introducing the two of us. A little bit about David. He grew up with a tribe of Mayan Indians in a remote village in the highlands of Guatemala. He is an author, a speaker, and advisor to entrepreneurial experts. Folks, this is the guy who coaches the coaches, and uh, he lives in Nashville. He is a proud grandfather, but on top of that, um, I think he's a man of wisdom. And I want to know, for starters, uh, David, uh, where were you 30 years ago when I needed you? <laughs> I was still trying to figure out things. I I didn't have much of a clue back then, even though I wasn't. I didn't know that at the time. Mm. But looking back, yeah, I was trying to figure out stuff for myself. Well, speaking of um, background, in thirty years ago, tell us about your own backstory and where you where you're from originally, and what led to this seminal book, "The Business of Expertise." So I was born in Michigan. My parents were medical missionaries. So when I was really young, we left uh, for Latin America, spent a year in Costa Rica while they learned the language. I went to kindergarten there. That's when I learned Spanish. And then we went to Guatemala where we lived with a very remote tribe of um, Mayan Indians. I was, you know, I wasn't involved in that work. Obviously, I was a young kid, um, but it was formative for me in the sense that it was a different culture. I got to see things from a different perspective and so on. And it also made me a little bit more curious about things, I think. Mm-hmm. I, I really am grateful for all that background. But sort of fast forward to school, and I was intending to be uh, a professor in a graduate setting teaching language and uh, maybe some philosophy with some anthropology as well. About halfway through that program, I decided it wasn't for me for various reasons, mm-hmm. um, but I decided to go ahead and finish it. So here I am. I've got kids married um, halfway through a four-year graduate program, and I have no plan for my life, right? So just started an agency thinking, how hard could it be? Of course, it turned out to be quite a bit harder than I thought. <laughs> Did that for five years and um, began to talk and then advise my peers, other folks that were running firms like I was. And it just opened up a completely new avenue for me to learn and to help. And so very quickly over about a six-month period, I began to work with other entrepreneurial principals and guide them to make better business decisions. I happen to focus in the marketing space, so digital, PR, Mm -hmm. communications, design, and so on. But I think the principles are pretty similar for anybody that runs a small entrepreneurial enterprise. Yeah, indeed they are. And um, this is a a wonderful question to open up with, but You've written this, and 
you remind me of Federico Fellini, who created great Italian films. Mm. And Federico used to say after the film, damn, I could have done better. So if if you were to project yourself of what's missing from this book, what did you mm-hmm. leave out that you, yeah. if there were a sequel, what do you want to tell our listening audience today? Well, I left a lot out because when I was intending, when I was all ready to sit down and actual, actually write it, I had already finished the research and the outlining. I always do that research outline right. Mm-hmm. So I'm sitting down to write, which is the part I love the most, but I just wasn't getting into it at all. There was something that was holding me back. I didn't feel a passion about the topic. And I was intending to write a, a, like 130,000, 140,000 word, kind of a textbook on this. And it just bored me. So I just figured, and if this bores me, imagine how a reader is going to be. So I decided to make it into a shorter sort of a manifesto-like book. And so it is less than half the length that it was intended. But if I were going to do it again, I think I'd make it even shorter. I would probably cut out some of the latter chapters. I would give more exercises and specific ways to think about it uh, for people to do that on their own. But I'm very happy with the book. You, I think most authors are plagued with this notion that, oh, if I just stick with it a little bit longer, I can make it even better. And it's just a false premise. You know, you've just got to write a book that's good enough at the moment. And I felt like that was, and I still felt like it was, but I would definitely write it a little bit differently. Yeah, I appreciate that. I think at some point you have to let it go out into the universe and let people mm-hmm. take it for themselves. And so here I am, just one man, but I have used and reused your book. And it's like, if someone were to look at it, it's like, how long have you had this thing? Because it's dog-eared, written in. And <laughs> the first thing that, that I uh, do in interviews when I'm talking to experts is I will refer to this. And I'll, if they say they're a guru, I go, have you read uh, David C. Baker's book on what he says? Because <laughs> there's not a good, uh, you shouldn't be calling yourself a guru. And would you expound on that a little bit and why you wrote that portion in there to kind of get people's attention, I think, when it comes to these self-labels? Yeah, it's it's too easy to self-label yourself. And because it's so easy, so many people have done it. And because so many people have done it, it becomes a little bit meaningless. If a reputable source or multiple reputable sources will come out and say on, you know, without you even prompting them that somebody is an expert in something, then I think we need to give that some weight and consider that to be true until it's proven otherwise. But this notion of guru or an expert or somebody, a growth hacker or whatever, all of these things, it seems like expertise has, has become sort of a positioning ploy instead of coming at it through the front door and really building deep expertise. And the premise of the book is that you can't really build deep expertise until you've made a positioning decision because it's just too big a task to be an expert in everything. And our world has become so complicated that now if we want to retain that expert status, we have to narrow down that field so that we can truly go deep enough in something. And so those are the kinds of experts that I really want to listen to, the ones that have done the hard work and the marketplace has recognized their expertise as opposed to somebody saying, I'm a growth hacker. Um, You look at my 
uh, LinkedIn profile. And four years ago, I was doing something as a regular laborer, had nothing to do with entrepreneurship. And I've got 38 followers on Twitter. It's like, no, that's kind of not the way it works, right? So it's really a passionate expertise for the notion of of putting yourself in a place where you are really helping your clients more. You're, you're serious about it. You're trying to notice the patterns and, and you're plagued with this uh, constant honesty and objectivity you have to bring to the table. And it may make for some uncomfortable moments with your clients, but it's the, it's the sort of expertise and honesty that they deserve. If you can't make that commitment to expertise, then, then you're kind of dragging down the whole concept for everybody. Mm. Thank you for that. Please comment on the the whole field of ec- being experts in a particular domain and why you think this should be an occupation that's earned versus people just hanging out their shingle to become the next coach, executive coach, or so-called expert consultant. Well, there's a big distinction between how some person or some firm labels itself, there's a difference between that and actually bringing deep expertise to the table. So we kind of have to go back about 25 years or so when the world began to be Googleized, which removed, I mean, it had all kinds of implications, but the one specific to this field is that it removed the geographic um, territory, the geographic moat or protections that we had before. So if I was a, let's say I was a a consultant to CEOs, then I had some leverage in my MSA or my operating area because it was too difficult for somebody to come into that market and work face-to-face. So that gave me an advantage. Well, with technology changing, it's enabled me to go outside my geographic market and deliver services and make money from it. But it's also allowed everybody else to come into my marketplace. So we've had to rethink what gives us any leverage in the marketplace in terms of a positioning. And so if you don't believe that premise, so in other words, if you are more in the service versus the expertise business, then it's going to be important that you come up with a positioning that really address, that gives some advantage to your physical or your geographic presence. And that's not the way expertise normally works, except for markets where expertise is by definition delivered geographically. So uh, surgery, medical surgery, or power to your home or those kinds mm-hmm. of things. Most of what we buy is not tied to geography. And experts who have the most impact and make the most money have a much broader geographic area, which means there are many more competitors to that and thus forces this earned positioning, which has to be stated, but then it has to be earned as well. Yeah, very good. Okay, folks, so I'm not going to give away any more of the book. You go buy it. It's called The Business of Expertise. David, if anyone wants to get an uh, autographed copy from you, how does that happen? Oh, they can go to expertise.is.is and uh, order it, and they just put a note in there, and I'll sign it before we send it out to you. Otherwise, you're probably going to buy it from Amazon, which means it won't be um, autographed, or it's also available (laughs) in Kindle or audiobook. Thank you for that. Okay, now we're going to move to the uh, philosophical side of our legend show and uh, ask David a few odd questions. Let's start with this one. I believe that you are a futurist, having 
uh, read your book now several times and that you have always been five to 10, maybe even 15 years ahead of the rest of the market. Mm. How did you develop that trait and that skill set? Hmm. I think it's not something our family ever talked about specifically, but I would say it probably stems from just a deep, insatiable curiosity about things. Yeah. Like as a family, I don't know if I should even admit this publicly, but we would uh, like one day every two weeks or so, we would all pack up and go to the airport. There was only one big airport in Guatemala City where we would come if we were escaping the village for a brief respite. And we would all go there and just sit at the airport and watch people. You know, it was, this is before TSA pre-checks, right? We're just watching people and making observations about them and making up stories about what must be true of their lives or whatever. Anyway, I think that sort of insatiable curiosity comes into play as well. And then also understanding that folks who are predicting wildly different futures that depend in part on very different humans are almost always wrong. We, we have to assume that humans are pretty much the same now as they have been for centuries and that change is very slow. So you got to listen to people who think everything is changing and people who think nothing is changing and pick some real sensible place in the middle. Right. At least that that's not a great answer, but that's my answer. OK, fair enough. All right. So I'm betting that you've uh, as you've gotten older, you've found out that you've turned into your in part your mom and dad what are the mm -hmm. funny parts of your mom and dad that you're now living in and, and it's manifested in today's david c baker with lucky landslots you can get lucky just about anywhere dearly beloved we are gathered here today to has anyone seen the bride and groom sorry sorry we're here we were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time no, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Oh, I think it's probably, without a, without a doubt, it's dad jokes. You know, I, uh, <laughs> I've, I've always felt kind of embarrassed about dad jokes, even though they're really, really funny. And then a few years ago, my oldest son, he was, I, he told a dad joke to the whole text message family group. And uh, I said, Hey, that sounds like a dad jokes. I thought you used dad joke. I thought you used to make fun of those. And he said, no, I love dad jokes. He didn't love dad jokes when he was young, but now he does. So now there's permission for me to tell all kinds of dad jokes. Uh, my dad and I are wildly different in some ways. He's not alive anymore, but um, he was a risk taker like I am, uh, not afraid of change at all. Uh, but he was an extrovert, and I am not an, an extrovert. I, I'm pretty much done with people overall. Mm -hmm. So in some ways, we're growing further apart as I become more and more an introvert, but we're more and more risk takers. So it's that's a really interesting question. Mm, I like that. Speaking of risk taking, we've been studying fear uh, lately with all of our guests, and I'd love to get your perspective on what has been your relationship with fear in your professional life and how have you yeah. managed it? Uh, that's easy for me to answer, but I I hope it doesn't unduly influence your listeners because I'm, I have a strange relationship with fear, and I don't think it's for everybody. Um, I try to acknowledge whatever the fear is. So I don't 
whatever I'm feeling. I don't try to push it down. I try to surface it, look at it from every angle and figure out exactly what it is. And then that's all fine. But what I do next, I wouldn't necessarily recommend for everybody. But what I imagine is what is the absolute worst that could happen? Like, and, and it's pretty easy to picture because of the way my mind works. And then I say to myself, okay, if the worst that I've just described happens, will I be okay? How will I be able to make it through that? What are some possible paths to recover from that? And the answer is always there. And so once I acknowledge that, then I faced that fear and I am, it's so unlikely that the worst is going to happen anyway. So it's like, oh, well, it's pro- even if the worst happens, it's okay, but it probably won't. I'm just going to keep flying forward. So that's how I work with most of my fears. I mean, I have some fears that are completely irrational, like being in a crawl space, dark crawl space with spiders, but I'm not really <laughs> working hard to get over those. I'm uh, the ones I think about are the ones that do personal relationships or sure. my work as a professional, that kind of thing, investments. Yeah, that's very insightful. Okay, back from my days at Procter & Gamble and PepsiCo where sonic identities and jingles and sounds used to be important to the brand. If there was a sound to being an expert, what is that sound today or that song that goes along with being an expert? Mm. I don't know what that um, – I don't know. I like there's some sounds. Um, I see that you uh, interviewed Steve Keller, who's a friend of mine. And uh, I thought oh, that really? was interesting. I was looking through the list of the people who have appeared on your show. I think really highly of him. We've worked together once. I I was thinking about sonic influences um, just yesterday and thinking about the sound that appears when somebody shows up on a Zoom call is a negative sentiment for me right now. <laughs> um, yeah. But that sound you hear at the beginning of every episode of an HBO series, that mm. one really is a positive sign to me because I'm just, I'm sitting down getting ready to watch something I know I'm going to enjoy. It's not always the case, but that's the feeling I get. I don't know what kind of a sound I would. That's such a great question. I just don't know how to answer it. And maybe it's um, if you had your computer play a unique sound when you got an email from a client that you'd worked with more than a year ago, because they're not writing you to whine about something a year ago. That always comes right in the moment. They're writing you because they want to share with you how something that you talked about really had an impact on them and it, and it still is having an impact. So maybe that's the sound I'd be looking for. Oh, that is refreshing. That's just too cool. That's very insightful too, that it comes a year after maybe something that you said. Right. You know, having worked in corporations for too many years, we had the, the smaller companies I went to work for, we started hiring consultants because we obviously couldn't figure it out ourselves. So I yeah. went from the pinnacle of Proctor to, PepsiCo, where they started bringing in really brainy people to General Mills, where they would bring in people to tell you what to do. Mm-hmm. And this one consultant, I remember, he he kept his secrets until the very last minute of the consultation. Mm-hmm. And I'll never forget, he said, this was after four days, fall down in front of the money. <laughs> 
be a fast follower. And I thought, uh, why didn't you say that in day one? And I'm, I'm wondering, is that a, a part of the, the way some individuals are trained to crescendo at the end and leave, leave you with this wonderful last words of Winston Churchill advice? <laughs> I think they're the armies of consultants, like the ones you're talking about, were probably from, you know, either Bain or BCG or, you know, one of the big firms. Yes. They are trained to soak up the oxygen and uh-huh. uh, do and, and pace the process out as much as possible, not unethically, but as much as possible. They're, they're a descending horde of an occupying army is how they, and, and they're not the mm. liberating force that does it quickly and moves on. They're the occupying force. M- my own, st- sometimes though, what looks like dragging out the answer can be the, the advisor actually listening really, really carefully, he or she might have formulated an answer that in the past in in um, less mature days, they would have just blurted out to be efficient. But now they've learned that maybe an initial answer they think is applicable really isn't after they listen more. So sometimes it's actually a pretty good thing. My f- approach is that I am just, I'm such an impatient person that I'm just driven for efficiency And my assumption is that my clients are driven for efficiency as well. Now, in the early days where there was always a little bit of question about whether I was earning all the money they were paying, in my mind there was, then it made sense to kind of make it build up to something and then provide the big answer, pretend I didn't figure it out until the end. But nowadays, if I can give somebody an equally useful answer in two hours or 10 hours, even if they're going to pay the same amount, they'll take two hours for sure. And so if you're worried about, we do this all the time in our consulting careers. We, our reports start out at 140 pages and then 80 and then 20 and then five and then nothing, right? Or hmm. how much time we, we're going to do 40 CEO or, or C-level executives or VP level executive interviews in order to really figure out what's happening. And then after the 14th one, you're not learning anything new. And so you just quit pretending you say, we're going to do as many surveys as we need to get to the truth. So it's all, it's all tied up with how you view the answers and how much value you place on your time and the client's time. Wow. Thank you for that. Okay, I've just got a couple more questions for our uh, guest here today on Legends, David C. Baker. When you read your bio, it starts with, I grew up in a tribe of Mayan Indians. I want one great Mayan Indian lesson to share with our listening audience. (laughs) Well, um, average income was $30 a month, U.S. dollars a month. And they were incredibly happy and generous people. We could be walking nine hours from one village to the next, be exhausted. We'd show up. It's a one-house hut with thatched roof and mud on the floor, dirt floor. And they have one scrawny-looking chicken that they've been holding on to for a special occasion. And they'll go right out and get it for you and and share it. It's, it's such a... It, it, it's a present culture. Yeah, it's not a developed culture, but it's a present culture from a human standpoint. And I'm sure that's not unique to indigenous people around the world, but it sure made an impact on me. It's powerful. Okay, take the floor and 
thank one or two or three of your favorite mentors in your life for how they positively influenced you? Sure. So Cam Foote, F-O-O-T-E, he's retired now. Uh, He was responsible for getting me into this field in the first place. He suggested that I offer these services and I wasn't even thinking about doing it. And he paved the way for that by introducing me to his audience. I would say um, Blair Inns, my podcast co-host, is very influential in my life as a friend and as a professional. He's constantly prodding my thinking. And I, our minds are almost together in the sense that there's so many things I believe that I think I believed all along when, in fact, I heard it from him for the first time. And I think um, Mark O'Brien from newfangled.com has taught me so much about how to run a business well and manage people well and manage growth. It's just been, so those are the three people probably that I would think of first. Mm. Here's to those mentors. What what a difference they made and continue to make, it sounds like. Um, okay, right. so we think that there may be a new definition of success out there post-COVID-19 when the Delta variant is in our rearview mirror someday. What do you think that that definition of success will sound like? I think success is going to be going to have more to do with um, people realizing how much freedom they have, um, Mm -hmm. how constrained they are with old typical thinking. One of the things that, COVID did for us as humans. I mean, the sad side of so many people losing their lives is is tragic. But what it did for the living is it helped them see that they are far more resilient than they thought they were. And that the way they had come to expect things to happen are subject to reinvention all the time. And I really hope that success shows up that way so that we don't just move forward in the same way, but we, we don't let crises like that one go to waste, so to speak. So that's what I would, that's what I would hope for, for my fellow humans. Mm, thank you for sharing that. And my last question for my futurist, David C. Baker, one of my favorite authors now is if you were given another hundred years, what would you want to accomplish in that time frame? Mm, I would want to write, write, write. That's mm. that's the biggest thing, the biggest downside of running out of life is running out of time to write. Uh, there are many better writers than me, but I am blessed or cursed with this. If I'm not writing regularly, then I'm dying. And that's what would that's what would be so exciting about me if I had another hundred years is is all the things I would learn because I would have a chance to write about them. That's that's the only way I can figure out what I think about something is just to face the public, possible public embarrassment by writing about things publicly. <laughs> <laughs> and there you have it. Our legendary David C. Baker, at the heart of this guy is curiosity and work ethic. Thank you for writing this book. It was great. Thank you for letting me come on your show. I really appreciate it. Nice to get to know you a little bit. Likewise, we want to thank our sponsors of this show, Edward Jones Financial Advisors. We appreciate their long-term support of this network. And as we always say, folks, may you continue to move from ordinary to extraordinary. Have a great week.
Thanks to our sponsor, Edward Jones. They are our trusted financial advisor. And Edward Jones has been instrumental in helping us pivot our lives built around health, happiness, travel, and adding value to other people's lives. You can contact our advisor, Serban Maracini, by emailing him at S-E-R-B-A-N period M-A-R-A-C-I-N-E at edwardjones.com. And thanks again to their sponsorship of this program. With lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.